0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: John Sylvia, Chief Economist at Wells Fargo, is with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. I imagine you were among those hoping for, looking for specifics (laughs) last night. Give us a sense of what stood out uh, to you, what you heard and what you didn't hear.
2: Uh, A more general uh, presidential tone, I think, was very, very positive. I think perhaps the lack of detail tells us that they're in negotiations, um, that they're trying to bring in the Democrats in different areas and trying to come up along with perhaps the fiscally conservative Republicans and coming up with programs that are actually going to get passed.
1: The speech was mostly perspective. Uh, he was looking ahead to the 250th anniversary of the founding of the country, kept talking about how we're nine years away from that. There was a moment, though, where he took stock uh, of where we are uh, today. He said, we've watched our middle class shrink. Ninety-four million Americans are out of the labor force. What did you make of the picture he painted uh, of the American economy right now?
2: Well, I, I would say that the... Better educated, more computer literate folks are doing very well in major urban areas. But it is those other areas in the United States which continue to lag behind. Uh, the middle income areas, the level of middle sc- skills, less information technology skills, um, those folks are still struggling.
1: He, uh, he rattled off a list of companies he has let's say, engaged with here since he became a president, since he was elected mm-hmm. president mm-hmm. in the first few weeks of his term. He talked about Ford, Fiat, Chrysler, General Motors, Sprint, SoftBank, Lockheed, uh, Intel. The list goes on uh, and on. What do you make of the the interface he's had with those companies and the degree which he's taking credit here for uh, them hiring, building new factories, moving jobs, uh, as he put it back to the U.S.?
2: Well, well David, I, I, it's interesting when you go through that list, the focus it really is intensely on manufacturing, uh, not on the service sector. Um, it is, you know, large-scale manufacturing. Okay, so, so, so where is the small manufacturing mm. firm? Where are the service firms? Um, where are the healthcare firms that are going to have to deliver on health care reform? Uh, where is the educational institutions are going to have to deliver on educating um, the middle income group, re-educating people? Um, that's what I'd like to see.
0: Hmm. John Sylvia, when I look at all the mix of things, I guess it's the bet, where are we going to be a year from now? Where are we going to be two years from now? Will the president and frankly, will Capitol Hill, will they move the fiscal needle? Will they move the nominal GDP needle? Or is that is that verdict out right now
2: i think they will move the needle uh i think it's going to be a struggle to get to some of the three and a half four percent gdp numbers they they talk about on a sustained basis i think mnuchin talked about over the next 10 years you've got to do something with productivity which goes back to technology and education Uh, you've got to do something with labor force participation rates it's easy in my world uh, in a very Keynesian sense, to get three percent, four percent GDP for one year, to do it on a sustained basis requires you do something on the supply side. Is
1: there a degree of short-termism here? We talked about those uh, those companies, uh, those big companies bringing some jobs back here, building factories. Uh, there's the prospect here of uh, of raising defense spending rather significantly here, getting sort of a maybe a short-term sugar high from from doing that. Uh, despite the rhetoric about looking ahead to the year, uh, 250 years after the country's founding, uh, perhaps the president just wants to do something now to uh, to do something in the near term.
2: Well, unfortunately, David, you know, for an economist, I'm very concerned that there would be a focus too much on doing something for the you know the 2018 election. Mm-hmm. We have to show results. Um, yeah, you can show some results, but again, trying to say it's sustained over time without running into the problems of a much higher inflation rate, because if all you do is stimulate demand, you're going to generate higher inflation numbers. The Fed's going to look at this and say, okay, now we need to start raising rates. Uh, the dollar gets stronger. And then all of a sudden, all this manufacturing focus is going to be stymied in many ways with respect to a very stronger dollar that's going to limit your exports.
1: He mostly uh, stuck to script last night. We got prepared remarks ahead of the speech. He did extemporaneously speak a few times. He talked about corporate tax reform. He said it's going to be a big, big uh, cut, veering off script there a little bit. When you look at all he laid out, a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, corporate tax reform, what to your mind stands the greatest chance of being stimulative economically?
2: Well, both of them would be stimulative, but when you say big, enormous, stupendous, to me- I'm using his language am. (laughs) I am sitting here thinking, okay, now, where are the fiscal conservatives in Congress, and what are the interest rate-slash-dollar implications of a very, very stupendous fiscal policy program? You give me something. Again, as I tell my clients, the great is sometimes the enemy of the good. Mm. If you're going for great- you might just overlook the opportunity to get something done.
0: The Senator from your neck of the woods, Lindsey Graham, I, I make a joke about it. I can never remember which Carolina he's South from. Carolina <laughs> hey, South Carolina. So that's the other one. He, 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 come on, he said the whole thing is dead on arrival. what What's the process you will observe forward? does Does he get a does he have a, a beer, a Narragansett lager beer with, with Speaker Ryan?
1: I don't think they sell and, that in South Carolina. <laughs>
0: No, 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 John, Gans- John no gansett. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, no. the water was so bad in Fall River, Massachusetts, and John Sylvia's ute. They serve <laughs> Mary gansett Lager beer, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the Sylvia
2: oh. household. I, I, I tell you, Tom, it is it is indeed oftentimes breaking bread. Mm-hmm. Sitting down with someone across the table, okay. sharing bread and saying, listen, we can be civil, we can work things out, we have our differences, can we move forward? And again, I'll go back to the comment I made to David. Mm -hmm. The great can be sometimes the enemy of the good. If you're just going to force your view on somebody and not listen to them and go for gold in terms of your programs,
0: I think it's not going to happen. For all of our listeners, where will the revenues come from for all this joy we are to expect?
2: I think the fiscal conservatives in Congress are going to limit what we talk about in terms of corporate tax reform, uh, what we're talking about, how, how many years are we stretching out the infrastructure spending, how many years uh, are we stretching out the defense spending such that the revenue needs will be modest relative to what some projections are now. There wasn't a whole lot of talk about energy last
1: night. He did say he'd cleared the way for the building of the, the Keystone XL and the the Dakota Access Pipelines, of course, with oil, where it's at today. Who knows? how quickly or if that uh, that might happen. Um, how important is energy policy going to be for this administration?
2: Well, it's going to be very important because if you want to produce more, you're going to use more energy. If you're going to do more imports and exports, the trucks have to run somewhere. Uh, so, the, again, that whole process is, is energy is integral to increasing overall production and employment in the United States. Our colleague uh, Kevin really
1: talked to Wilbur Ross as he made his way to the chamber, of the new Commerce Secretary. They had a bit of a conversation about trade and trade Policy. Is your sense here that it's going to center mostly, at least in the short term, on enforcement, that this administration is going to be bring more things before the WTO?
2: Oh, I-, I would say that would be the easier way for yeah. them to go. To, to bring up individual cases and to focus on, you know, what can be done. But again, I like the idea that Wilbur Ross is a business person. He's done deals so we can do deals before without right. being confrontational mm-hmm. about blaming another right. nation or a strategy.
0: John, we you've written, and unfortunately we're going to have to leave it here very quickly. Is it a gilded age? To me, not only it is a gilded age, but it's gotten ever more gilded in the last year or two. Do you buy that, or do you see a, a lessening of inequalities?
2: No, I think when you look at the data, it's pretty clear. That is yeah. a gilded age for um, information technology, information processing individuals in major metropolitan cities is become increasingly difficult for manufacturing blue-collar um, in smaller, more remote cities.
0: Uh, John Sylvia with Wells Fargo with us. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Sylvia, greatly appreciate that the Admiral from Tufts University and their Fletcher School Dean's Stravitas. Admiral once again good to speak to you great to be with you Tom and David uh, Admiral October 23rd 1983 6:22 a.m. we lost 241 Marines. Uh, in Lebanon, along with 58 French peacekeepers. We lost a guy in Yemen. I get it. We saw all the emotion in the drama last night. Basically, I believe we have a commander in chief going after the generals over a military mission. I don't recall in my reading any other president that's ever done that. Am I wrong?
3: No, you're absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, as we always say with, uh, accountability comes responsibility, and he is the commander-in-chief. Last two words, pretty important there. And so it's a little surprising to hear that tone coming out of the White House, Uh, Tom.
0: Please explain and define commander-in-chief from the eyes of a guy that came out of Annapolis a million years ago and dragged his way across a number of ships. What (laughs) what does commander-in-chief translate to in the military?
3: It is the ultimate embodiment of civilian control of the military, which is something we never, never want to let go of. That's bedrock for the U.S. military. So having a civilian be the commander-in-chief obviates all the other commanders in the chain of command. He supersedes them or she. And ultimately, that uh, responsibility, that awesome responsibility requires accountability as well.
1: Admiral Stavridis, I was talking with Todd Harrison yesterday from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I think it's safe to say nobody knows the defense budget better uh, than he does. He's made a career of, of studying it. We were talking about uh, this increase that the president has proposed in the defense budget. Help me square something. You've got a president who talks about withdrawing from international conflict, having a smaller footprint here, and at the same time is talking about spending more money on defense. Does that make sense to you?
3: does not. And uh, I think that Um, You you get to pick uh, whether you want to be Teddy Roosevelt, uh, speak softly and carry a really big stick, or um, the way the Trump administration is heading is speak loudly, uh, but with a larger stick. Um, And so I, I think we... Uh, have to wait and see the actions that the administration takes. But certainly at the moment, it's a little difficult to square the circle.
1: When Donald Trump was a candidate, he was eager for the president to say three words, radical Islamic terrorism. Indeed, he did utter them last night on the floor of the, the House chamber. I go back to the reporting on the National Security Council. H.R. Uh, McMaster, the, the former general, now the National Security Advisor, not rather still still general, uh, National Security Advisor, talked about uh According to reporting the fact that that's not the motivator here. apparently he's he's lost out. What did you make of that that rhetoric last night? the president using it uh, and still continuing to say that's uh, that's who's uh, who's at fault here?
3: It's inevitable that uh, someone like President Trump, who's built his whole campaign around this, is going to use phrasing like that. It is, uh, it does not help us with our uh, Muslim allies who are very much in this fight against uh, organizations like the Islamic State and uh, Al Qaeda. It's undeniable that there are radical elements in the Islamic faith that are attacking us. That's uh, a fact. Um, But, you know, to hammer it home like that, uh doesn't help us very much.
1: Help us with some fact checking here is the former NATO uh Supreme mm-hmm. Allied commander. We we heard the President say last night uh, that the money is pouring in from our, our NATO allies, that he sent his emissaries, the Vice President Mike Pence and his Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, uh, to Europe to talk to our allies about their commitments to NATO. And then again, as the President said, the money is, is pouring in what did you make of that line and what's changed <laughs> here since those two gentlemen went to Europe? <laughs>
3: well, uh the gentleman you're talking to uh me was at the Munich Security Conference, and I heard uh Vice President Pence and I heard secretary Madison then I moderated a panel with five NATO Uh, ministers of defense, secretaries of defense, I would say it's fair to say the promises are pouring in, but we haven't seen the money yet. Uh, So let's be hopeful that this kind of rhetoric will move the allies to spend more. Uh, We need to keep it up. We ought to remember that the last three secretaries of defense, including the two that I worked for, uh, did this as well without a lot of effect. Having said that, overall, NATO's a bargain for us. They're currently spending $300 billion a year on defense, which is more than Russia and China combined. They're they're good allies. Mm-hmm. We need to keep pressing them to up a little bit, yeah. but uh, we should not let them go.
0: Very quickly, what's your wish list for your Navy? What's the Navy need? Mm-hmm. Number 1, we need new uh ballistic
3: missile submarines, Tom. This is the backbone of our Oh, uh, there you go, charge. just like Rick over. Yes, indeed. Uh, two short guys in agreement. But uh, uh, I'd say after that, uh, I'd like to see uh, the joint strike fighter get yeah. on the decks of our aircraft carrier. And number three, we need more of the Aegis global ballistic missile systems that knock down people like Kim Jong-un's well, nuclear missiles.
0: That That is a, a a great list for another conversation. James Travitas, he is dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thank you particularly for those questions on Yemen. It's all smiling on the floor last night, and there's Senator Leahy talking to Admiral or General so-and-so, and everybody's shaking hands. And all I could think of was a congressional budget office, page 14 of their 43-page joy on the future of Navy budgeting. I doubt the president's aware of this. But it's really about lobbying and strong-arming and the power and the ballet of building the three Navy projects Admiral Stavita has just told us about on Bloomberg Surveillance. How does the administration adapt their newness to the realities of the glad-handing we saw on the floor last night?
4: I just don't think, Tom, that Donald Trump cares too much about the bean counters yeah. at the Congressional <clears throat> Budget Office. I mean, there are being counters, and they uh, will talk about how much things cost. But I think once again, in a great speech last night, by the way, but once again, Donald Trump showed he doesn't really care that much about the deficit.
1: What do you attribute this change in tone to? You said in your most recent note, we look forward to it whenever you send it out most, most days here. We do. Uh, this, was, uh, this was the greatest speech of his career, a stylistic and substantive tour Deforce. Yep. I, I imagine that you were as, as, as uh, curious as all of us about how this was going to go down last night.
4: Absolutely. But I think what prevailed in the end were the polls. And even though Trump derides the polls, he knows his job approval rating has flipped. So does Pence. So does Priebus. And I think they got together and said, you have got to change your tone. And I think that change of tone is going to yield really positive dividends.
1: Let me ask you what you heard about trade policy yesterday. There was kind of a light moment when he brought up Harley-Davidson. Uh, executives from that company visited the White House. They brought uh, five of their bikes, put them on the uh, the south lawn of the White House. Uh, the president saying he was urged to get on one of them, and he said no no thanks to, to the executives there. What do we hear about trade policy? What did he say he's heard from executives he's been listening to about what they want to see in terms of trade policy?
4: Well, you know, I think there'll be some retaliation against the Chinese. We pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But at the same time, I think on most economic issues, the the two Goldman Sachs guys, uh, Cohn and Mnuchin, will call the shots. And Goldman Sachs does not believe in protectionism.
1: Amid all of the, the optimistic rhetoric, there were a few uh, parts of the speech that were a bit darker. When he talked about crime in particular, he's talked a lot about the situation in Chicago and the, uh, the, the woeful number of, of homicides we've seen there over these last few years. But this is something he continues to hit on. How well do you think that's, that's resonating? Why do you think this president is focused so much on crime in cities?
4: Well, it's true, David. I mean, you look at the murder rate in places like Chicago, but I, I think compared to the inaugural address, Trump looked like Little Miss Sunshine Nine. last night. He appealed Nine. to our, our our better angels. I mean, there still are <clears throat> problems. But yeah. I, somebody obviously got to him and told him he had to lighten up.
0: I just want to editorialize here that, Greg Villiers, I think the president would look awfully good on a Harley glide <laughs> Ultra Classic at 24,149 dollars. I mean that says I mean Advanka could take it around if he doesn't uh, want to. That that's it's like one of these big old street bikes John Tucker like you had in your ute, not like an Easy Rider thing. It's much more of like a, you know, going down Park Avenue kind of kind of ride. No no
1: secret service restrictions on John Tucker. Tucker. Yeah, that, that yeah, that would be well. true.
0: Greg, help me here with the reversion back to the behavior that's had a lot of Americans a little bit on edge. Do we get presidential tweets out of here, or do they take his phone away?
4: Well, that's the issue, isn't it, guys? I think that over the next 72 hours, we'll see what he tweets. Is he still angry, nasty? Uh, We'll see what he says in these rallies that he and Pence are going to go to in the next two or three days. So he toned it down last night. I thought it was a remarkable speech, but one speech may not make a trend.
1: Yeah, he heads down to uh, the USS Gerald Ford to a Navy uh, supercarrier tomorrow. He's going to speak about the defense budget, I'm sure, while while he's down there. yeah, He talked about moving past negativism and pessimism and and fear, Greg Vallier. Uh, I wonder if he should have taken a little bit more credit for that. You mentioned that speech that he gave at the RNC. I mean, this is a guy who uh, was talking a lot uh, about fear for a long time.
4: Yeah, obviously. He was you know, throwing red meat at the at the true believers. But I do think that he has to be mindful that his overall job approval rating has dropped below forty percent. You know, political capital is tricky. He's got to save some for Obamacare. That's a that replacement is a big issue. He's got to save some for tax reform. And I think his advisors told him you've got to be more moderate.
1: It's, it, you, you watch this and you're looking for reaction. Tom mentioned the glad handing, the greeting of, of, of lawmakers and cabinet officials at the beginning of the speech. During the speech, you're looking to see who's applauding, who's standing up. And I was struck by when the president mentioned that $1 trillion infrastructure package. Standing up behind him was the House Speaker Paul Ryan. Were you surprised by that, that that had the support of the House Speaker?
4: No, I have heard Ryan in private talk about the Dwight Eisenhower uh, interstate highway uh, spending in the 50s. I mean, Eisenhower is responsible for all of the the roads, the big roads we have. I think Ryan would like to I think Ryan would like to repeat that.
1: Help us with that Mm. historical analog. The president very keen to make that parallel there uh, to President Eisenhower. How different is this calling for the kind of private public partnership uh, the president's calling for?
4: Well, I think it's important. I think that Wilbur Ross, who's a very clever guy, is going to try to lead a private sector drive on infrastructure. I think the big problem is there aren't a lot of Republicans in the House who want to spend $1 trillion.
0: You you alluded, Greg, today, I believe it was you, maybe it was Marty Schenker, It becomes a blur, folks, that the Tea Party is quote-unquote dead. I mean, something along that line. Is there a Tea Party constituency that stood up to Speaker Boehner, and will they speak stand up uh, to Speaker Ryan?
4: Well, here's what we got to watch for, guys. March 15th, the debt ceiling expires. They will not raise it. We'll have an ongoing crisis until summer with Treasury limping along, funding the government. And on April, I think it's 28th, uh, the continuing resolution keeping the government open. Expires. So there's two really big stories that will show whether there's still this Tea Party ferocity to well, cut what's deficits. your guess?
0: What, what's your observation?
4: Oh, my take is that Trump is indifferent uh, to deficits. He yeah, wants but, to jumpstart.
0: Okay, I get that, Greg, but he can propose. Yeah. They have to. They have to dispose, right? He can't be oh, I indifferent. There'll be an odd alliance
4: once again between House Republicans. And House Democrats, there'll be an alliance to agree to more spending, and I think that the real hardcore fiscal hawks are going to lose to Trump. And let, let us not forget, Donald Trump at his core is a Keynesian.
1: Uh, Greg, before we let you go here, let me ask you about the Democratic response. We haven't talked about it yet, but you had Steve Beshear, the former governor of Kentucky, Democratic governor who is term limited, uh, out of office now, born in uh, Dawson Springs, Kentucky, uh, has a tenure at White Case here in New York, finds his way back to a diner in Lexington to deliver that response uh, last night. What did you hear from him about the direction of the Democratic Party? What did he say to you about where that party's headed, what it's going to be prioritizing here going forward?
4: You know, I think they're a mess right now. They don't know how to respond. Yesterday, Trump talks about immigration reform. He talks about spending more yeah. money on infrastructure. So where do the Democrats find an opening? Maybe Obamacare, but the Democrats are in the wilderness right now.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, in a way, we saw that last night with a lack of applause. I mean, that yep. was their, their protest. Mr. Valier, as always, thank you so much. He was with Horizon Investments, Greg Vellier with always interesting perspective, really dovetailing it back into... Uh, finance and investment as well.
1: David Gura and Tom Keene in New York with Bloomberg Surveillance. We continue to talk about that speech that Donald Trump gave last night before a joint session of Congress. Steve Ratner joins us now, chairman of Willett uh, Advisors. And let's start with the tone. We've been talking a lot about the tone of this speech last night, how different it was from what we've heard uh, from President Trump during his first few weeks uh, in office, and indeed what we heard from candidate Trump on the campaign trail. Did that change in tone, Steve, uh, obscure the fact that we didn't get a lot of the specifics that investors were hoping for yesterday?
5: Uh, we certainly did get the change in tone. I think we've got the same exact list of specifics more or less than we've seen before, with at least one exception. I think on health care, where it really wasn't clear whether he was with Paul Ryan or whether he was still think, thinking about some of his statements about trying to keep everybody who has a plan on a plan, all that kind of stuff, he seems to have clearly come down on the Paul Ryan side. I honestly never thought we would get much more than uh, than that in specifics. I, I, I think he just doesn't have his policy teams in place. He doesn't have his, his policies ready so he's not in a position to lay out a tax plan, for example,
1: he talked about a trillion dollars in in infrastructure spending invoked at President Eisenhower. How useful is that parallel there? You want to bring up Eisenhower because of the uh, the highway system and all of that uh, is what he's proposing something that is in fact, an analog to the system that uh, Dwight Eisenhower created?
5: Well, he got Eisenhower and Lincoln into They're the spe- <laughs> in, into the speech um. Okay, the infrastructure is, is one place where he has have, had a specific plan. It doesn't make a lot of sense to many people. It provides 82 percent tax credits to private the private sector to go out and build the projects, which uh, I don't know anyone who, who actually thinks that's the best way to go about this. So we'll have to wait and see, and I mm-hmm. think you've already heard reaction. I think I heard on Bloomberg Radio mm-hmm. this morning that or last night after the speech from the deficit Hawks that they're not so happy about spending a trillion dollars yeah. without finding a way to pay for it.
0: One of the charms of one s Ratner folks is he has discovered Twitter, and Steve Ratner is very good at putting out blather stopping charts of clarity and brutality. You did two yesterday on the Affordable Care Act. Let's cut to the chase. The Affordable Care Act is about helping a lot of poor people get medical insurance. What can be a constructive Republican solution to take the advantages of ACA and dovetail it into the rich's fury over subsidizing the poor? How do they get out of that that mess that you brilliantly showed in your charts yesterday,
5: and, and just to and just to return the compliment, you have very articulately explained the essence of Obamacare, which many people feel intuitively, which is why they don't like it, but but don't understand exactly what's happening. Yeah. It is a program to get a lot of less well off Americans 20, 20 to twenty three million onto it. Remember that the basic idea of a mandate was a Republican idea. It was their antidote to the single-payer idea. So in a way, Obamacare is uh, is a Republican idea, but now- I think they, Governor
0: Romney would say that.
5: And Governor Romney uh, uh, as well. It was actually pre- predated Governor Romney, Go, but yes. he adopted it in Massachusetts. Well,
0: what's the, what's the outcome here for the Republicans
5: the, in the, Speaker Ryan? The outcome- I think the outcome is a much skinnier health care program. You limit the amount of Medicaid money to the states. You take away the individual mandate. You take away the limits on what kind of plan you have so you can go back to these, very, these so-called mini plans uh, uh, that people got before Obamacare. Yeah. And so you somehow keep maybe almost as many Americans on health insurance and you declare victory – because it also costs the government a lot less, but yeah. meanwhile, those people have much weaker plans.
1: I mean,
0: David, it wouldn't cover my Botox. <laughs> I mean, that's all there is to it. <laughs> that's
5: what's most
1: important. There's so much hooting and hollering about a national marketplace, uh, Steve. The president brought yeah, this question. up last night. Talked about how we could uh, see ourselves buying insurance across from other state states, lines. From yeah,
0: it plays on nuts like you Look, buy
5: liquor and uh, yeah. But this, <laughs> th- this is, you know, th- this is a uh, a charade because what this does would basically. Uh, create a race, a race to the bottom among states to have the plans offered in their state, so they could have more jobs and, and insurance companies. It's very much like the corporate law game, where states game, you know, try to try to have the most favorable corporate law environment to get more companies to right. incorporate there. And so you lose a lot of the really tough regulatory oversight that the states now provide to insurance plans within their own state when they're trying to keep their insurers from leaving their okay. state and going to some other state that's offering a better deal.
0: Steve, your worst nightmare. Donald Trump calls up and says, "Steve, can you be the healthcare czar? What's your What's your day one task in Washington?" Well,
5: uh, uh, quit right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Obamacare needs some fixing. Everybody agrees. There's Everyone agrees. Been, with there's that. never yes. been a major, uh, never been a major benefits program like this put in place without then having to tweak it. The problem is, for the last six years, Obama could not get anything done. So, for example. The putting a limit of three to one on the prices that could be charged to the oldest Americans and the youngest Americans was a mistake. It was well-intentioned, but you need a wider band so the insurance for lower people is less expensive. Right. The, man- the, the mandate penalties are too low. You need to have serious penalties for people not signing up to get those young people onto the exchanges. So there are a bunch of fixes you can do that would actually make it work better, but yeah. that is obviously not at all the direction yeah. that we're going and to be going in. I want
0: to thank our great team that, that brings us our guest. Folks, David Gurr and I never lift the phone. I mean, no. maybe for Ratner no. we would, but, <laughs> but our team, we had, we had in the head of New York Presbyterian the other day, Tremendous. Uh, a cardiologist who was just brilliant on this from the medical side, and we heard from Stephen Ratner today. We're going to continue with Mr. Ratner here on the President's Speech. Uh, we should point out he handles investments for the principal owner of uh, Bloomberg LP from time to time time he does that with Willard Advisors. Uh, Stephen Ratner, I, I I look at the charts and the gradient of our fiscal policy, and everybody looks at the y-axis. I would suggest the x-axis is important, and then that gets us to the when of this, the political process and the when of tax reform, the when of deregulation, the when of all the enthusiasm of the president. Is the when going to be more delayed?
5: I think the when is going to be much more challenging than maybe people think, and I'll give you a couple of examples. First of all, you've got the border tax issue which is going to face significant opposition. It's a
0: real issue? I mean, everybody I talk to can barely get done. What do you think?
5: I, I think that I think its probability of getting done are like low single digits. Yeah, I think they're almost infinitesimal. Now, the problem is without the revenues from the border tax, all the rest of tax reform gets much more complicated because you then have the deficit hawks. Uh, you have certainly the dynamic scoring crowd on one side, but you got deficit hawks on the other side. Uh, And you heard some of them, as I said earlier, on Bloomberg Radio last night, who are not going to allow uh, a lot of unpaid-for tax cuts. So that is a huge problem on the tax side. On the Obamacare side, to replace Obamacare with something that's really substantive, you need 60 votes in the Senate. You can't do it all through reconciliation uh, because it's not all budget and tax related. And obviously that means Democrats. That's not going to happen, notwithstanding all of Trump's efforts last night to reach out to Democrats – Uh, So I think you're looking at two years of legislative hand-to-hand combat, and then maybe something comes out the other side, maybe it doesn't.
1: How does the rejiggering of regulation happen? Last night, the president uh, saying there'll be a deregulation task force inside every federal uh, agency. Made me wonder if there's going to be one at the CF. PB among, among other places here, but is this going to happen a, a, away from the U.S. Capitol?
5: Yeah, well, a lot of the regulatory side, there's just like, just the way everyone was attacking Obama for the last six years for using executive orders and regulation to get stuff done when Congress wouldn't act. Now it's going to be exactly the opposite. The president is going to use the authority he decried uh, to take away regulations, to re-regulate, to go through a process. There are rulemaking processes. There are limits based on what's in legislation as to what he can do. But there's a lot of uh, – maneuver. for example, they have already told the IRS not to enforce the individual mandate uh, as part of Obamacare. They can just go do that. And so you're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And frankly, some of it will be good. Some of it may go too far. I uh, rolled off
1: the surveillance cot this morning after doing our coverage here last night on Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Television, picked up uh, the New York Times, a great lead here by Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman. The speech was written, the rollout strategy was set, and then President Trump began talking and the plan went out the window, unless that was the plan all along. They're talking about uh, immigration policy here. What do you make of the about face we heard from the president last night in that speech, the, the seeming openness uh, to some sort of immigration reform?
5: I, I think we all know that the president deep down is not as, uh, I'll say, hard right as, as uh, some of his policies that he's been espousing would suggest. He grew up, you know he grew up in New York, the ultimate melting pot, the ultimate diversity, a center of diversity. And so I do think there is some element of that in him. And I think, I, I think it's quite possible you'll see him soften on some of those kinds of issues like the, yeah. the, the so-called dreamers.
0: Mm-hmm. If we could switch to the investment world, uh, Steve, one of the great ideas is inflation is rising. And even if it's a gradual rise, as John Sylvia of Wells Fargo said yesterday, without the inflammatory comments of the media, that cuts into real wages, real return, real yields. Is this a fear that inflation will grind higher and nominal yields won't rise as quickly?
5: I don't think I've heard that espoused. And obviously, we meet every day with our investment managers, with companies and so on. I don't hear a lot of that yet. Uh, you know, inflation has been so muted, and indeed, we've been trying to get inflation up for so long that I don't, I, I, I just, no, I don't, I can't say I hear a lot of that You think out the there.
0: nominal will outpace the inflation rise and we'll get some real return, whether it's in finance or investment? Well,
5: remember, one thing that is a, a bit of a yin and a yang is that uh, many of us have been feeling that real wages needed to go up simply because they'd been depressed for so long and part of uh, you know the political zeitgeist, every direction, uh, you want people to be doing mm-hmm. better. That obviously puts pressure on costs for companies because if they're paying higher real wages, then by definition, there's some pressure on their, on their profit margins. So I think you will see some of that kind of stuff start to happen, but I, I do think, and I think President Trump would agree with this, that unless you get real wages up, Then this then we're going to have the same uh, turmoil, political turmoil and unhappiness and all the other social problems that we've been talking about for the last few years.
1: If I were to draw a a Venn diagram of tax reform here, I've got the the Ryan Brady plan uh, in one circle and I've got what Gary Cohn is working on in the White House in the other. How much crossover is there? In other words, as we. Go forward here on the issue of tax reform. How much unanimity is there between the executive and the legislative branches?
5: Well, if you line up up the tax plan plan that Trump used during the campaign, which I know may not be operative anymore, and what Ryan said, there's a lot of similarity on the individual side. There are some differences over things like charitable contributions and deductibility and whatever, but the tax rates are very, very similar. Uh, Trump had a much more generous corporate tax plan, actually, than Ryan did, although it did not include – the border adjustment tax. So I think there's a fairly significant uh, level of, of overlap. I think well, the hard part is going to be getting this stuff done.
0: How do you, as former cars are, synthesize? Well, th- actually, this is a scary thought. Steve Ratner's motorcycles are. <laughs> but there's the president last night talking up Harley Davidson and all the icon, uh, American iconic Midwest manufacturing ethos of it. How do we jumpstart Midwest manufacturing? A strong dollar is not going to do it. We understand that. But what's the Ratner prescription so that there are more Harley Davidsons, as the president mentioned?
5: To be perfectly blunt, the Ratner prescription is to be realistic about what can be achieved. We are not going to bring back millions of manufacturing jobs to this country. And if we did, the only way we would do it would be at very low wages to make them competitive and if you ever if you ever see a company announce they're bringing jobs back i'll bet you a lot of money they're coming back at wages well below historic high manufacturing so when the president
0: lists all those companies last night you're not you're not
5: well every one of those companies has publicly said that they were going to do that anyway Thank having have nothing to do with the president and they're doing it for different reasons for example you can't make small uh, cars officially f- f- in this country so Ford was going to make them in Mexico now they're not going to make them at all so they're gonna do some other stuff back here and you can go through case by case This was all part of their plans. And again, Mm -hmm. they generally come with lower wages and different deals with the unions, if there are unions at all. I think we have to think more broadly about how to create jobs in this country and be more creative than simply say, we're going to bring back millions of auto worker jobs. It's not happening.
1: Has that run its course? Are we going to hear this throughout the next four years? We're going to have uh, companies...
5: (laughs) We're going to hear this every day of the next four years. Uh, Look, the one thing as a business guy that I kind of like is that he's had more meetings with businessmen in his five weeks or whatever it's been than Obama probably had in four years. And I'm glad he's talking to businessmen because I think business does have something to offer here.
0: Very beneficial. Stephen Ratner, Willow Advisors, thank you so much. And, of course, folks, you know him from his public service uh, to the auto industry a few years ago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.